I'm Tony Payne. Welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth. Great to be with you again on this partner-only subscriber-type edition. And the painful truth this week is that this is a rather bitsy kind of edition of The Painful Truth. It's going to be a series of short bits and pieces rather than one single vaguely coherent thing. And the reason for this is that there's some change in the works. I'm in the process of putting together some significant changes to the painful truth, and God willing, I'm hoping to be able to tell you about those in the next week or two. Uh, Don't be alarmed. These are good and exciting changes. They're good developments. But organizing everything, sorting out what has to change, and getting things moving is taking quite a bit of work, and that means a bit less clear air, clear mental space for actually writing things. And so I'll say a bit more as soon as I can, and as partners and subscribers, you'll be the first to know. But it does mean that this week, it's a little bit more bitsy, The Painful Truth, particularly picking up some of the recent correspondence you've been sending in. And the first thing I wanted to share was an encouraging email from Josh Dickinson in response to my piece about the value and importance of reading Christian books, the one about the road to spiritual health being paved with Christian books. And Josh writes about how he and some friends addressed precisely this issue, and he writes as follows. You asked for thoughts, says Josh, on how we might encourage reading, as I was previously an impoverished, but now a fairly prolific reader, I thought I might share the fun activity that changed me. A few years ago, we were reading a book as part of a small training team when one mate and I were convicted of our poor reading habits. I had done an eight-week weight loss challenge recently at my gym. So to kickstart reading, we set ourselves a similar challenge. We challenged each other to read eight Christian books in eight weeks. The rules were simple. They could be any theological books you wanted to read, and each person could pick different books. And by the last week, you had to have read all the books. But you didn't have to read one book per week, making it easier to read some longer books. Since completing this challenge with my friend, we haven't stopped. And God has grown us so wonderfully through reading. Thanks so much for this suggestion, Josh. It's a great idea. An eight books in eight weeks reading challenge. You might make it 10 in 10 or 12 in 12 if you're more ambitious, or if you're a bit less ambitious or feel like you have a little less spare time, it may be a six books in 12 weeks challenge, whatever it might be. And even though it might mean a bit less TV and social media and YouTube scrolling, it seems like a great way to ignite a taste for spiritually nourishing reading. Set yourself a challenge with someone else of reading a certain number of books in a certain period of time. Great idea, Josh, and thanks so much for writing in to share it. Now, speaking of writing in and sharing comments, I think the prize for the most regular and insightful commenter on The Painful Truth probably goes to John Lavender, and I'm actually planning to do a podcast with John sometime in the near future if I can get it organized. For those who don't know John, he's been a very faithful and gifted gospel minister here in Sydney for many years now retired from church pastoring, but still engaged in the gospel cause in various ways. He's been recently working with Evangelism and New Churches, the department here in Sydney that um, helps to promote and stimulate evangelism around the place. And John's been visiting and helping various Sydney churches to think through exactly these issues. And he wrote in recently to 
my piece about the importance of gospel clarity, to make the following comments. He writes, Agree 100% about lack of gospel clarity. The lack of clarity flows over into a lack of gospel passion. But if I could add to your diagnosis, I see two further issues. Firstly, the word gospel has become so frequently used in so many varied contexts that I'm sure it's lost its meaning. This fits well with what you say about a lack of clarity and understanding about the meaning of the gospel. Examples of what I mean are, we want to share the gospel, or it's important we understand the gospel, or as a church we want to proclaim the gospel, or we stand for the gospel, or we're committed to the gospel, and so on. I hear this a lot. And I think in so many of these cases, people have little or no idea what exactly they mean by gospel. And it would be more appropriate sometimes to use different words or expressions. This is a big concern, but I think my bigger and second additional concern is that much of the teaching about the gospel is very abstract. That is, there are really concrete, specific examples that connect with real life to help people understand the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. For example, people don't really grasp what sin is. It's too often explained, as I hear it, in abstract terms rather than in relational terms, giving illustrations and examples of how sin affects us or impacts us, and then helping people see the significance of how we are freed from the penalty and consequence of sin. I'm thinking of biblical examples like Matthew 4, 15 and 16, or 9:36, Luke 4, 18 and 19, or 15:32, or if we turn to the issue of the resurrection, passages like Luke 23:13 or Revelation 7 and so on. I could go on, but what I'm trying to say is that the Bible often paints pictures of sin and its consequences, or the resurrection and its consequences, which appeal to the head and the heart, if I can put it that way. But what I'm often hearing in sermons is simply, Jesus died for your sins, Jesus rose from the dead, with little or no explanation or application for what this is and what it will look like in our lives. So it is no wonder that there's no gospel clarity, and especially no gospel passion. I'm hoping all this makes sense, says John, but in the churches that I visit and in a lot of sermons that I hear, I see people unaffected and unmoved. It's as if they had the latest stock exchange numbers read to them. There's very little, so what? Thanks so much for this, John, and I think these are really good insights, and I think they are tied together, the two things that John says. The clearer we are conceptually about what the gospel really is, its different component truths and facets, its logic, its implications and so on, the clearer it is in our minds, the more accurately and effectively we'll be able to teach it. And that's really John's second point, it seems to me, that teaching or proclaiming the gospel message means explaining it, illustrating it, fleshing it out, putting it in different terms to help people grasp its meaning, and then appealing to them in personal, understandable, real-life kind of terms to hear and understand and respond. And if we are less clear about the gospel itself, about its content, about its logic, about its implications... We can go wrong in either direction. We can retreat into repeating a formula of words that we can't actually explain to people. 
Or else, on the other extreme, we use lots of stories and emotionally powerful illustrations that move our hearers, but which don't actually teach the truth of the gospel because we don't completely or clearly understand it. And so we don't then invite the right response to the gospel as well. This is all great stuff, John, and thanks again for your many helpful comments over the last couple of years. The other thing I wanted to run past you this week in this Bitsy Painful Truth was a final something from the Two Ways to Live evangelistic book. I sent through another excerpt from that last week, you might remember. As I'm just rounding things off and trying to finish the manuscript, I've realized that I need to put together an appendix of some of the, I was going to say frequently asked questions, but I think I'll call it parked questions. Questions that I've kind of put on hold as I've been going through the different chapters, where I've acknowledged that there's an issue or a question that people might have, but have just kind of parked it for later so as not to derail the whole chapter by having a long explanation about this question. And so far, there are three particular questions that I parked along the way. The first one was about the Bible. Can we trust the Bible? Because in the introduction uh, to the book, I talk about the Bible being the source of our knowledge about the Christian gospel. So people may have questions about the Bible. Uh, Secondly, in chapter one about God as creator and ruler, there's the obvious question about creation, about evolution and accidentalism and so on. And I parked further discussion of that for later. I did mention it and talk about it briefly in chapter one, as much as I thought I needed to, but people may have further questions on that issue, given it's been raised. And the third one is about the resurrection. Did the resurrection really happen? Because in chapter five, as we get to the sort of climax of the gospel message there, the truth, the historical truth and reality of the resurrection is obviously critical to that whole proclamation. And so people will understandably have questions about that one. And so those are the three questions I'm thinking I really need to have something on in a little appendix. They're questions that are raised along the way by the presentation quite explicitly, and so I'm thinking I should touch on them. It's of course not every question that will possibly be raised in people's minds or that I could answer in relation to the gospel, but to try to answer every question or even all the most frequent ones I think will perhaps derail the presentation as it stands and become too long and complicated. And perhaps that's a process for a follow-up book, for a different presentation, for further explanation. I think I'd like to keep this book quite tight uh, and focus it on a presentation of the gospel itself. So here's my initial draft answer to the first of those questions about the Bible. And I'm wondering what you think of it and whether you can help me improve it, keen as always for your thoughts. And so here's a short answer to can we trust the Bible? The source of all our information about the Christian gospel is the Bible, a collection of 66 books written by various authors over a period of around 1500 years. Now people have various questions about the Bible, but the two most important ones for our purposes are these. Can we trust that the Bible we're reading is what was written all those years ago? Has the Bible been changed or doctored? Can we trust the text of the Bible? And secondly, why should we believe what it says? Can we trust that the Bible is true? So let's start with the first of those questions. Can we trust the text of the Bible? The Bible 
is, of course, the best-selling, most widely read book of all time. If you were to go into a bookstore today and buy yourself a copy, and you can in any bookstore, what would you have in your hands? Well, first of all, you'd be holding an English translation of the Bible. The Bible was written in the ancient languages of Israel and the Mediterranean world. The 39 books of the Old Testament, as it's called, were written mostly in Hebrew, with a bit of Aramaic here and there, roughly between 1500-ish and 400-ish BC, where BC means, of course, before Christ. And the 27 books of the New Testament are written in the common Greek language of the time, roughly between 45-ish and 80-ish AD. Now, when I talk about the books of the Bible, these were not printed bound books as we know them. They were handwritten scrolls that were preserved and passed on and copied by trained scribes. A very large number of these ancient handwritten manuscripts have survived in part and in fragments or in whole. And by collating them and comparing them and studying them, scholars have been able to reconstruct with a really high degree of confidence what the text of the Old Testament was that Jesus would have had at the time of Jesus and what he would have read and quoted from. And likewise, historians have been able to establish that the Greek text of the New Testament that we have today, the four Gospels, the letters that the Apostles wrote and so on, was in almost every respect the one that was written way back in the first century. Now I say in almost every respect because there are some details, a few of them, that remain uncertain. Because the manuscripts were copied by hand, small errors often crept in. A letter or a word might be miscopied or missed out or doubled up and so on. However, because we have a large number of surviving ancient manuscripts, scholars are able to establish in nearly every case what the original text was, but not in every case. And so sometimes there are small variations. So to give an example, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Some of the early manuscripts don't have the words of God after kingdom. It just says, Seek first the kingdom, not seek first the kingdom of God. Now, did some scribe miss out those two words just by mistake? His eye just skipped across and he missed out the words of God? Or did one of the copyists add in the words of God kind of out of habit or because he thought they belonged there? It's hard to say, of course. But either way, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference to the meaning of the sentence. And these are the kinds of small uncertainties that exist here and there in the text of the New Testament as we have it. In other words, the idea that the Bible has been significantly edited or changed down the centuries is itself a myth. The evidence is really overwhelming that the text of the Bible that we have today that serves as the basis of our modern English Bibles is the text that was originally written all those centuries ago. So yes, we can trust the text of the Bible. But can we believe it? That's the second question. Can we trust that the Bible itself is true? It's one thing to accept that the Bible is a genuine historical document, that it really does record, for example, what Matthew originally wrote, or John, or Luke, or Mark, 
about the life and works and words of Jesus in their Gospels, or what Paul originally wrote in his letter to the Colossians. But that still leaves the question, why should we believe it? Why should we believe that what Matthew wrote about Jesus was true? If the claim of the Christian gospel is to say something that is true about God, about the world, about Jesus, about us, why should we accept that it is true? When any book claims to tell the truth about something in the world, for example, a book about the causes and effects of the Russian Revolution, how do we evaluate the truth of what is being said or claimed? Why should we believe or trust what the author is writing? Well, usually we apply several tests in our minds. For example, we look to see if the author has any personal credibility. Is he a noted Russian historian? Does he write in a reasonable and rational way? We might also check to see if what he says tallies with other facts we know from other sources. So if he argues that the Russian Revolution in fact happened in 1921, we'd start to distrust him as an author because of all the other evidence, the massive evidence, that it happened in 1917. Likewise, if the way that the author described the people involved in the revolution, their motivations, their behaviour and so on, just didn't fit with the way the world is, as we experience it and know it to be, we'd start to wonder whether he was telling the complete truth. We'd also weigh up his arguments to see if they made sense on their own terms. Is there a consistency and logic to what the author is saying? Is it persuasive? Is it internally consistent with itself? Now, these are the kinds of standards or tests we apply in our minds when we read anything or hear anything, and we often do it without consciously thinking about it all that much. And then we come to a conclusion, sometimes quite quickly, sometimes after some considerable thought, that the thing we're reading has the ring of truth about it. It's like this with the Bible. It claims to tell us the truth about certain realities, about God and the world and certain historical events that have happened in the world. As we read it, we look to see if its authors write with the credibility of personal and eyewitness experience, and we find that they do. We would also ask whether what they say about the world and historical events fits with what we know of the world from elsewhere, not only with how we experience the world, but with other external historical sources that we have. And again, we find that it does. For example, a number of 1st and 2nd century non-biblical sources confirm the basic historical facts about Jesus that the Gospels relate. When we read the Bible, we'd also want to know if there is a unity or internal consistency to what is said. And again, there is an extraordinary logic and unity and consistency to the message of the Bible, even though it was written over a vast period of time by many different authors. These are the kinds of factors that have led millions of people down the centuries to read the Bible and see in it the ring of truth. The only way to test this out is really to read it for yourself. And one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, would be an excellent place to start. Well, there you go. There's a, a shortish but I hope adequate answer to the questions people might have about the Bible itself. What do you think? Any thoughts about whether that's satisfying, whether that's enough at this level? 
or whether you think more or perhaps less is needed. Please let me know what you think. One final thing to remind you about, I've realised that all of a sudden the Centre for Christian Living event that I've been mentioning a few times on deception is only a couple of weeks away. It's on the 24th of August, which means that I'd really better get cracking on finishing my preparation for that event. But it also means you probably should get cracking if you want to come along, either in person or via live stream. It's on at Moore College in Sydney on August the 24th, or you can join via the live stream as an individual or as a group. And to find out all the details, head over to the Centre for Christian Living website. That's ccl.more.edu.au. Well, that's about it for me this week. Thanks so much for your support and thanks for being with me. And I hope to be in touch again soon with news about what's happening next on The Painful Truth. I'm Tony Payne. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.